Hi, I'm Jacob Miller, and I'm going to be reading today's passage. Today we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jacob, Jacob Miller, for blessing this church family this way. You know, when it comes to ministries of mercy, or what sometimes we call mercy ministries, um, you know, there may be a number of faces or names that come to your mind, but probably one of the most prominent figureheads of mercy ministries would be uh, the person by the name of Mother Teresa, right? Uh, Albanian-born, but obviously felt the call to, to help the, the impoverished people of India, and especially in Calcutta, and um, and Mother Teresa obviously had quite a legacy. I mean, whether you are Catholic or not, whether you're even religious or not, everybody knows about Mother Teresa. She served the poor and she served the sick without any expectation of return. Um, she, established, she established hospices. She established orphanages. She went around and even uh, uh, set up a leper houses. Again, these are, she associated with people that almost nobody else would associate with. She loved people, and she was in their lives, not just at a distance, but was literally willing to rub shoulders. No doubt, I wonder, did the thought ever cross her mind, like, in my mercy ministry, in my efforts, in my faithfulness, will I, in fact, be inflicted with some of the diseases, or, or, or the, maybe leprosy in this case, because I'm loving these people? And it may have crossed her mind, I don't know. But the fact is, she is a person who has left a lasting legacy of what we might call mercy ministries. You know, when I thought about her life and I thought about our specific context, I couldn't help but be actually very grateful for some of the ways in which we as IBC have been used by God to, uh, in a similar way, be, be, be kind of hands and be feet, be conduits of his grace in his mercy. I mean, I mean, as I was kind of reflecting back, just for a brief moment, it did not take long for me to come up with a short list of ways in which God has called us and used us in the lives of other people. I mean, I, I think of Steve Blakeman, who has, you know, retired from the prison, 
but uh, obviously helped lead this prison ministry in which we got to uh, preach uh, almost every, a couple times a week, in fact. Of course, lately it's been different, but, um, but the fact is we've had a long-standing tradition and, and footprint at Clallam Bay Prison. Uh, I appreciate Wendy McClish and her clothing world. She, I mean, she's just been serving so faithfully, Wendy, right over here, uh, just really loving on people and really just taking the reins, taking ownership of going, hey, there's a lot of poor and needy people in our community. I want to do whatever I can to make it possible to put clean clothes on them. And thankfully, they, you are making sure the clothes are clean. I love that. There's other stories for another time. Thank you for your donations, by the way. Clean clothes are appreciated. Um, we get, you know, the deacons and deaconesses uh, are part of Thanksgiving baskets, Christmas baskets, all with the intent to uh, follow up with people, to just love on people in a very specific way. We have Christmas house, which is intended just to open up our doors. The community literally comes in. They may not come in on a typical Sunday, but they come on that particular weekend, and they, we get to bless them in the most practical of ways. Um, we have care for the shut-ins. Let me just put it this way. Can I just give a shout-out to the deaconesses and many others and our, our wonderful parish nurse, Kathy Craven? Um, I know I didn't uh, talk to you, but I just, I, I am amazed. Because when I, you know, especially when COVID was just kind of ramping up and then uh, one of the big concerns was, oh, people are not going to be followed up with. People are not, people are going to be falling through the cracks. And yes, some people did, but guess what? Not our shut-ins, not the people that are struggling Literally, I went through the roster, and I was like, is this person, is this person, is this person? And guess what? There wasn't one name that was mentioned that was uh, uh, uncared for, that was not intentionally followed up with all the way through and continues to be. And I just got to say, it didn't rely upon one of your pastors. It was the body of Christ serving the body of Christ. So thank you, church family, for being so faithful, for being so gracious even our dear sister, who some of you know, Carol Campbell, passed away uh, this, about a week ago now. And uh, as I thought about the, the many complications that she dealt with for years, I also was just amazed at how many of you were able to serve her. And even in light of our text this morning, uh, yes, sometimes it was like, we got to think of a, a long-term plan. We got we to really help this, wo- this woman that God has brought into our midst. But at the same time, now the Lord has brought her home. And then I look back and some of you, like Roger Halgen, Roger, I don't even know if you're in here, but Roger Halgen was a, a, an example of what to do. And he just served faithfully. He didn't get, he did, wasn't asked, he just did it. Rosemary Cook, always with her, constantly. And I know the deaconesses, so many others, people are constantly fixing, the deacons going over and fixing things for her. This is what God has called us to. Now, you could always justify it and go, you know, I, 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 you know I, there's, there's other systemic problems that we need to deal with, and, and maybe there's some kind of enabling that's going on. Yes, of course, but you know, in the end, we are called to ministries of mercy. And when I think about individuals that have, have touched the lives in a very specific way of fellow brothers and sisters, I ask the question, what about you? What about you? In what way are you personally involved in the care of others? You know, in our text this morning, as Jacob Miller read for us, we see that we are coming to the conclusion of Jesus' final sermon. It's classically known as the, the Olivet Discourse. He's coming to the very end. And again, in two days, Jesus knows. In fact, next week we'll realize 
He says it specifically for the fourth time, I'm going to the cross. Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen and he knows exactly when it's going to happen even though nobody else does. And he's, he knows that the, the cross is kind of in, in his mind. It's, it's not a rearview mirror thing. It is like, this is my next step. This is my next act of obedience, my next act of surrender. And even though he's looking to the cross, he also points his disciples to another future reality, not in two days, but at the end of days. A future reality where all people will stand before Jesus as judge. You see, the difference, however, between those who are saved when they stand before Jesus as judge, the difference between those who are saved and, and those who are not saved, those who are saved to eternal life and those who are, uh, have to stand before God and are lost to eternal judgment, Jesus says, has to do with their care for others. Verses 24 and 26, for example, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. In contrast, this declaration to verses 41 and 43, then the king will turn to those on his left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. You see, the point that Jesus emphasizes kind of comes to a conclusion on in his final sermon before he goes to the cross is this. Again, he's been constantly bringing us back to this, this kind of focus. Be ready, be alert, be faithful. I'm going to come back and when you least expect it, it's going to be sudden and you won't, nobody knows, not even me, only the Father knows when this will all transpire. But until then, be faithful. And here's the evidence Here's the, the signs of one who is faithful. More specifically, here are the, here's the evidence of one who is truly my follower. Our point that I'm going to kind of drive home in kind of implicit as well as explicit ways is that every follower of Jesus is expected to personally care for the practical needs of others. My prayer for us when we, when we leave here this morning, that you walk away with knowing that I have a personal responsibility to care for the practical needs of others. And we're going to kind of, kind of unpack it in this way. I have six different uh, considerations that I want to kind of help bring greater understanding to this mandate. First of all, we're going to talk about the mandate of mercy ministries. Then we're going to talk about the recipient, the recipients of mercy ministries. We'll then talk about the motivation that drives mercy ministries then the character of mercy ministries. Then we'll go into the reward of mercy ministries and then the warning of final judgment. So let's first unpack this first point, the mandate of mercy ministries. We see again, once again, that Jesus identifies that there are two kinds of people in the world. 
from a spiritual perspective, from a spiritual end, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Now, we can, we can make all kinds of distinguishing characteristics about people groups and, and philosophies and affinity groups and everything else, but Jesus, from a, from a salvation perspective, there are two kinds of people, the people that are saved and the people that are not saved. There are people that, that know God and there are people that do not know God. There are people that belong to Jesus, but there are also people that do not belong to Jesus. And the way in which Jesus identifies the differences between these two kinds of people, at least in this text, is in their care for others. The sheep in this text represents those who belong to Jesus. They are on his right. They are the ones who cared for others. On the other hand, the goats represent the people that do not belong to Jesus. And they represent those who did not care for the practical needs of others. In other words, one person shows the genuineness of their faith by their care for others, and the other, show, the other person shows that they have no saving faith because they do not care for others. When we think about the mandate of Scripture, We see that all throughout Scripture, this theme continually keeps getting brought up. Because Jesus is less concerned about with what, now please understand me in context, he does care about what we say and what we profess. I'm not saying that he doesn't. But what Jesus constantly condemns, much like what the Pharisees were, is they professed a big a kind of a big message, but their lives did not follow through. They were the classic hypocrites, professing one thing but living life in a very contrasting or hypocritical way. So profession, yes, matters, but also the way in which we live our lives ultimately points to what we actually believe. So we see in John 13, for example, a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. And of course, love for one another isn't just having warm, fuzzy feelings about them or toward them. It is also meeting their needs in the most practical of ways. We see elsewhere in James chapter 2, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. John also relates in 1 John 3, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, the lo- does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The point here is that loving one another in the most practical of ways is not a suggestion by God, but it's an expectation by God. Now, if you're like me, the question that naturally comes to mind if, if I read something like that is, does this mean that I'm expected to meet every need that I'm confronted with? Does this mean I have an obligation to to meet every need that I see or every need that I encounter? 
And that brings us to our second point, the recipients of mercy ministries. Verse 40, we see that the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Here we see that that the king, in this case, which is Jesus, specifies who the righteous are to care for, first and foremost. And first and foremost, we see that who we are obligated to care for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are followers of Jesus. These are fellow Christians. In fact, whenever Matthew refers to brothers in his gospel, it always represents those who share the same faith. In other words, brothers isn't just fellow humanity. It's not just fellow people. He's, it's brothers and sisters. Is a kind of, it's an affection of like-minded faith. So when, when this king responds in this parable, who is Jesus, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, he's talking about the household of faith. Now the question is, why is the spiritual family prioritized in such a way? I mean, after all, I mean, it seems natural that we would prioritize our biological family in that way, no matter what. But why is our spiritual family, in a sense, given first dibs, given, given kind of given first priority? Well, I believe, of course, a number of things could be mentioned about this, but it's because our spiritual family is eternal and our biological family is temporary. Now, I know I'm kind of opening a door but not walking in it right now. And you probably have a lot of questions. We'll talk about marriage in, in heaven later. Oh, wait, there is none. But the point is that Jesus is identifying that our spiritual family needs to be properly recognized and therefore properly placed within our life. In fact, if you read in Matthew 12, for example, Jesus elevates the importance of the spiritual family. Recall when when Jesus was standing and speaking to a crowd, it says his mother and his brother stood there outside asking to speak to him. Again, the expectation was, if your family's here, drop whatever you're doing, and even in that culture, a very familial culture, they're saying, hey, family always takes precedent over everything else. And then Jesus says this, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he points to his disciples and said, Look at these. Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sister and brother. You see, the precedent that Jesus was driving home there was, Hey, I understand that I I care about my mother and I care about my siblings. I do care about them very much. But ultimately, and he's not just because he's Jesus and we're not Jesus, therefore he can say that and we shouldn't say that. No, he's saying this. Hey, we are all to regard and to view our spiritual family in its proper light to see us that we are going to spend eternity together. The biological or the nuclear family is not going to exist in heaven. But the spiritual family of God is where we are all brothers and sisters in Christ Worshiping one God perfectly and completely. I appreciate what Joseph Hellerman says in his book called The Church as Family. He says, The church or the family of God is not here to serve the interests of our family and its preferences, desires, and needs. Rather, our families are here to serve the family of God. 
There's a paradigm shift. Because so often, especially in the Western church, we oftentimes wonder, what is the church going to do for me and my family? What programs are you going to set up? What, what ministries are you going to have available for me? What are you going to do for me? And it's actually just the opposite. The question is actually thrown right back in your lap, going, what are you going to do for Christ and his church? Through your family. Um, I was going to bring attention to this later, but I love the fact that I get, we get to include my own children in the greeting and connect ministry. I love the fact that we're going, hey kids, just because your kids doesn't mean you can't be a part of this. And so I love Katie's even wearing this shirt right now. We'll bring greater attention to that later when it's all ready to go. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. We do have an obligation to serve and to care for the needs of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But secondly, there's a second recipient, and that is kind of indicated in the Galatians verse I just read. We really are to do good to everyone. And I believe the greatest illustration of what it means to do good to everyone is the the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? I won't go into it. I'm not going to read it right now. But the Good Samaritan, you know the story, right? Well, a guy is on the way to Jericho. He gets beat up and left for dead. And we see a Levite goes by and a priest goes by. But, the, you know, because of their cleanliness laws and all their things, they kind of avo- they avoid the guy and they go on their way. Again, their religious understanding did not allow them to serve and love the man who was left for dead. And then the Samaritan, who the Jewish people referred to or thought of as half-breeds and therefore you know, basically dogs in society. He was the one who stopped, took ownership and responsibility, threw the man on his own donkey, cared for all his medical expenses. And the question, of course, is posed at the beginning, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, this person recognizes who your neighbor is. It's anyone who the Lord has put in your life. It's anyone whom God in his divine sovereignty has allowed you to encounter. Have you ever thought of it this way, church family, that if you see a need, do you think it's a coincidence that you see that need? Do you think it's a coincidence that somehow in God's divine providence that you are encountering this need? The question is, When you see it, if you see it, how are you going to respond to it? I got to be, in all transparency, I I love taking my lunchtime walks. Michelle knows and stuff what I'm talking about. I I take off and I do a lap around the whole town. In the summertime, it's very different than winter. In the wintertime, there's less people out and about, right? But in the summertime, there's a lot of people out and about, especially the homeless community. And, uh, And I'm out and about and I'm seeing all kinds of people. I'm seeing lots of need in front of me. And of course, my intention of going out is to kind of stretch the legs, to not sit for a little while, and to kind of just get some time with the Lord. But the Lord oftentimes gives me opportunity to kind of see someone. Even just, just this last week, I was walking through the transit center area and heading back to the office, and there's just a guy by himself. You know he's kind of uh, transient in, in our society. I've not actually um, seen him before, and people come and go all the time. And he just, he just kind of did the head nod, and I did the head nod back, and I kept walking, and then it was just the Lord just said, what are you doing? 
And, and I really, you know, I didn't hear the audible voice, but I knew I was supposed to stop. So I just stopped and I turned around and said, how are you doing? And we just got to have a, just a five-minute chat. Acknowledging his presence, at least validating his humanity. After all, isn't that why we serve everyone? Because they are all image bearers of God. Brothers and sisters, every single person, whether they are rich or poor, whether they have a lot or have very little, whether they are affluent or not, whether they smell good or they smell bad, all people are created in the image of God and therefore have value and worth. And that's why we love and do good to everyone. So on one hand, we pay special attention to the practical needs of brothers and sisters in Christ, but on the other hand, we meet the needs of everyone as God gives us opportunity. And of course, I believe that when we have opportunity to meet the needs of those who are not a part of the body of Christ, we see this as an opportunity to build a bridge for the gospel. Because in the end, you can serve their physical needs, but if you don't also attempt or actually prayerfully ask God, are you opening up a door for their spiritual needs, then I think we've missed the opportunity. After all, you can potentially love someone all the way to the gates of hell. And so it's important that we also recognize that when we do good, as we are given opportunity, we are also mindful or aware of the fact that God is also saying, glorify me in this. Don't just do the deed, but make sure they know that Jesus is the one meeting their need. Make sure that they know that Jesus is the one that's actually loving them. After all, Jesus himself never divorced the physical need with the spiritual need in his ministry. And I think we are supposed to follow the same example. Point number three, the motivation of mercy ministries. I think the first motivation we see for for caring for the needs of others is the awareness that you are really serving King Jesus. Verse 40, I tell you the truth, when, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Notice how the righteous servants respond to Jesus uh, after King Jesus, after he acknowledges their care for the poor and the downcast. In fact, they're surprised. They're like, when do we do this? When do we visit you in prison? When do we clothe you? When do we feed you or give you water when you were thirsty? When you did to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. They were surprised because they did not realize in their care for others, they were actually serving King Jesus. So when we think about the motivation for mercy ministries, I think it's helpful and and really a a compelling reason as we care for the needs of others to be aware of the fact that we're actually serving Jesus himself. I mean, think, dwell on that just for a moment, church family. Dwell on that. When you are serving others, you are actually serving your king, your Lord, and your God. It makes you kind of Maybe it's kind of a good way, a good a reminder that the next time you encounter a need in front of you, you don't see this as someone who is begging from you or someone who is, or someone that you are feeling compelled to minister to, but you are actually going, God, you are actually calling me to serve you right now through this opportunity. I believe the second motivation is not just that we are serving King Jesus, but 
It's also the motivation when we come to the recognition of how much you have already received from God himself. In other words, because we have been served, we also serve. And, and we love because we, we were first loved by God. And, and we forgive because we have already been forgiven. And we care for others because we have already been cared for. And in other words, the motivation behind meeting the needs of others is because that's exactly what God has done for us. And sometimes the, the, the most gracious people are the ones who know they have received much already. That's why it's important that we rehearse the gospel to ourselves because when you realize how much you have already received, you're eager to give that for others to receive that in like fashion. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Just as God in Christ forgave you. Or as 1 John 4 says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. And so our commitment to and our involvement in for the care of others reveals a heart that has truly been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Let me just say that again. Our, in, our commitment to and our involvement in reveals a heart that is transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Let me just make a distinction here because there's a difference between commitment and involvement. Commitment means that you have a genuine care for needy and you may support certain needs financially. You may vote to encourage these pursuits. You may be an advocate of mercy ministry, but involvement takes a step further because involvement means you participate firsthand. You take ownership or first-hand responsibility for the needs of others. I appreciate uh, what Shane Claiborne says. He says, when we get to heaven, I'm convinced, I'm not convinced Jesus is going to say, when I was hungry, you gave a check to United Way and they gave me something to eat. Or when I was naked, you donated clothes to the Salvation Army and they clothed me. Jesus is not seeking distant acts of charity. He seeks concrete acts of love. You gave me something to eat. You gave me something to drink. You clothed me. You invited me in. You looked at me. You came to visit me. So are you a person who is personally meeting the needs of others? Are you someone who is taking first-hand responsibility for the needs that you are aware of? Please understand, I'm not minimizing the other opportunities. It's not to say that those who donate to charities or, or to other organizations, that's not wrong. I'm not saying one's right, one's wrong. No. But sometimes we can dismiss our own responsibility and say that we've kind of done our parts and not have to get dirty, so to speak, by donating to those bigger organizations and charities and therefore we can feel like we can pat ourselves on the back a little bit going, all right, I've done my part. But perhaps God is actually needing to go, hey, I want you to be with them. With them so much that you start smelling like them, perhaps. Obviously, helping others requires wisdom and discernment, but it also requires something else. It requires character. Character. 
This is our fourth point, the character of mercy ministries. Specifically, what I want to highlight, not something that is new to you, but something that we need continual reminder of, and that is the the character of humility. Remember when the disciples argued about which, which, which of them would, would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? You know, okay, hey, am I going to be on the right or am I going to be on the left, said the sons of Zebedee, right? Or some of them say, hey, hey, who's going to be the greatest? We want to know, is it going to be me? <laughs> and what does Jesus do? He takes a child and plops him on his lap and says, anyone who wants to be, who becomes as humble like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The point is, a heart that has truly been transformed by the love of God will gladly and humbly care for the needs of others. I think it's interesting to note when, I, when you kind of reflect on the list of practical needs that Jesus highlights in, this, in, his, in his sermon here, we see that these acts of service are, are, are not earth-shattering, uh, monumental, massive, visible, media-highlighted accomplishments. They're not like, like, whoa, look what this person did. Let's give them a Nobel Peace Prize. No, the, the acts of service that are highlighted here um, are really just acts of faithfulness that are usually very small, routine, everyday acts of kindness, that almost nobody notices. But they are needs that are met because it's the right thing to do. Because you're serving your king. Even Mother Teresa herself says, not all of us can do great things, but we can do, think great, we can do small things with great love. Elsewhere she says, do not think that love in order to be genuine has to be extraordinary. Question is, are you just being faithful to the needs that God has, in His providence, allowed you to recognize and to meet? You see, in pride, we oftentimes want to confuse kind of wanting some sort of recognition or we're doing it for God, but we also are kind of, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes doing it for ourselves. I recall when I was uh, in Uganda with my, my brother in law and stuff, and a long time ago now. Um, but we were sitting in one of, some restaurant, and uh, it was a, a coffee shop of some sort, and there was some NGOs that were there, one in particular, asking him like, kind of his backstory, and he's from the UK, and we're asking him why he's in Uganda. He's just like, kind of find myself. And again, I'm not discrediting him or condemning him in any way, but at the same time, I couldn't help but wonder, like, so you're not really, help, you're here to help the people of Uganda, but you're really here to find yourself. So that seems to be the motivation for your presence here. And, and, and oftentimes people can serve others only to make themselves feel happy. And again, you do feel happy. There's a, sense you, a real genuine sense of joy when you serve other people. But the reason you do it is because you're serving your king and because you're loving this person without any expectation of return. Again, I, I went through a whole bunch of quotes by Mother Teresa and she has a lot that were very poignant to this sermon. She says, your true character is most accurately measured by how you treat those who can do nothing for you. Your true character is most accurately measured by how you treat those who can do nothing for you. It's not what you get. It's the fact that you get to serve your king. And you realize that anything you have It's only because God has equipped you in his divine providence to be a conduit of his blessing to those in need. 
We see that because of this, point number five, there is reward because of our faithfulness in mercy ministries. Specifically in this text, we see that the reward is eternal life, right? In verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now I do know we need to bring some qualification to this because it's easy to kind of misinterpret what I just said or what seems to be kind of at first glance what the teaching is in this text because Jesus seems to be saying, wait a second, if I do these things, this is kind of the promise of eternal life and, and I need to qualify this. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. We don't earn our salvation because we do the right things. No, we because we are truly saved, therefore we do the right thing. In other words, we don't, we don't do acts of kindness. We don't care for the needs of others for our salvation. We do it from having already received genuine salvation. We cannot earn anything. Everything that we have from God in regards to eternal life is only His grace and His mercy in our life. But... We see that because we have received his mercy and his grace, because we have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, because we have a new heart and a new mind, because we see all of life differently now, because we have the Spirit of God indwelling us and consuming us, then we see everybody and all of reality differently. And as Jesus is highlighting here, I think more specifically, works are the evidence of genuine salvation. They don't contribute toward your salvation. As James will say, someone will say, someone, someone will say, you have faith and I have works, but show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so we see that the reward that Jesus states here in Matthew 25, what we really see is that the reward is when we stand before Jesus as judge, we don't hear, I don't know you. But the reward is this, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But six and finally, there's a future event that should sober all of us, right? Again, Jesus keeps coming back to this. And it's something that most people don't ever want to think about. Most people don't want to think about their death, let alone the idea of what happens after death. And we see that there's a warning of final judgment. Again, the whole context, the scene, are people standing for Jesus as judge. His first coming was to be the humble servant and be Savior, but when he comes back and when we stand before him, it won't be as Savior, but it'll be as judge. And he warns of a day when we stand before him that the, the Father obviously judges no one, but Jesus has been granted all authority to judge. Now I know this, this idea of judgment, even the idea of hell, for example, uh, by even many professing Christians is a, is a difficult theology. It's a different, difficult doctrine to accept, let alone kind of we try to like, we, even if we can't help but accept it, we try to kind of soften it. We, start, we try to soften the blow. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, hell is a very, is a very real f- 
future for many people. Narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, but wide is the path that leads to eternal destruction. In fact, if we're talking about motivations for pursuing people, the motivation of what faces them, their future reality, ought to compel us, ought to propel us to being faithful to whoever God brings into our life. I think what's shocking as I reflect on the future reality of judgment is not that that Jesus will one day act as judge. We like the warm, fuzzy Jesus, but we don't like the, the judge Jesus. But I think what's most shocking is not that Jesus will be judged. I think what's more shocking that Jesus first came to save us in spite of us. That, that Jesus actually came in humility to save us from our sin. You see, I'm convinced that the scripture makes it very clear that God would have been perfectly righteous if he did nothing. But he showed his righteousness by doing something. He took ownership of our sin. He took ownership and he brought it upon himself. He put it on his son so that we could live. That is shocking. So the question I want to have you reflect on, first and foremost, is first, have you received this gift of grace? Is your name written in the book of life? If you were to die right now, would you be okay? Do you have absolute certainty that you are right with God? One of the evidence for genuine salvation and genuine transformation is by our by your care for others. This past week, I'm not, I know a number of you are following along the, the common prayer devotional throughout the week. My wife and I are also going through it in the mornings together. A couple of them just seem to be very apropos, right? Um, earlier this week, the final statement before the, the prayer was this. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts, O Lord, so we may not only see and receive your mercy but also notice the places in our world where you call us to extend mercy. May we not only be the recipients of his mercy, but may we also notice the places in our world in which we are called to extend that mercy. So in the process of doing so, one other final comment. Lord, wherever we look today, allow us to catch a glimpse of you And whenever others look at us today, allow them to catch a glimpse of you. As you are faithful to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, knowing that you are actually serving Jesus, my prayer for you, and I pray our prayer for one another, is that God has blessed this person because of your faithfulness. That you are a faithful conduit 
of His mercy and His grace and His goodness. I can't think of a better context in the world in which we live currently in which people are floundering and struggling and and fearful still, thinking that the vaccination is the ultimate hope. Yes, I'm grateful for the vaccination, obviously, but thinking that that's going to be our Savior. No, no, Jesus is our Savior. What drives away fear is when the Spirit of God indwells and consumes one's life. And I pray that you by God's providence and his sovereignty would use you to bring this hope and this peace through your care for one another. Lord, thank you so much that you are a God who invites us to come to into your presence through prayer. You know, Father, we have enough time trying to be good listeners with one another, but you always listen. And even when we can't even articulate what we're trying to say, you still understand. So, Father, thank you for receiving our prayers. Thank you for the opportunity just to acknowledge who you are and your goodness to us, your relentless pursuit of us, your faithfulness to us, the fact that you're so steadfast in love for us and patient toward us. Father, thank you that we are the recipients of your blessing in so many ways. Even now, Father, the fact we are here right now shows that you have been gracious to us already. Father, we know that we live in a world that is hurting and that is lost and that is dying and that is, um, there's so many needs. Even you promised the, need, the poor you will always have with you. But Father, you do call us to minister to the poor, to care for those who are distraught and down and out in so many different ways. And although, even as was pray, we are not the solution, we are not the hope, but we are the messengers of hope. We are not what people need, but we are the ones who can bring words of life and truth and point them to the one that they ultimately need. And we know and we acknowledge, Father, that so oftentimes our practical care for others is the window, is the doorway to bring people's, people's ultimate need, and that is understanding your grace and your mercy, that you came to save that which was lost. So, Father, I just pray that we would not so easily dismiss the opportunities, especially viewing, uh, viewing these opportunities when they're not necessarily planned. In fact, they appear sometimes disruptive to our plan. They may be inconvenient to our already preordained schedule, as we might define it. But Father, may we look at every opportunity as this is something that the Lord is, is directing me to do. May we be faithful in being your hands and your feet knowing that we are serving you the entire time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.